tell the audience about how you got started in real estate. Welcome to the Masters in Real Estate podcast with your host, Tanner Webster. All right, I'm here with Jordan Farr from Marcus and Millichap, um, the man when it comes to self-storage in Utah. Appreciate that. <laughs> all of the market share or close to it? I got some competitors out there, but it's, so, yeah. Doesn't feel like it, but <laughs> cool. Well, want to start off on kind of where we're at in the market right now with self-storage. I think, you know, with multifamily and some other assets, there's a lot of, you know, so-called distress or signs of distress on the horizon. Is it similar for self-storage or where do you think we're at? Yeah, I mean, looking back, I don't think that anybody would have thought that COVID would be the greatest thing to ever happen to self-storage. And it really was. Um, so from 2020 to 2021, the first half of last year, we had record occupancy, record rate growth, record acquisition and sales prices, like everything just flew through the roof. Um, we're definitely coming back down to earth, but in comparison to some of the other asset classes, you know, office, multifamily, industrial that might be facing a few more headwinds, self-storage is doing pretty well. Um, a lot of that just has to do with the nature of month-to-month leases that gives owners the variability to adjust as they need to. With the month-to-month leases, one thing that's maybe I'm just paranoid, but I've always thought like, what if everybody just leaves in yeah. one month? But uh, kind of random statistic: Do you know how often those turn over? Like the average lifetime of a you know self-storage tenant? Yeah, it's actually getting longer. Um, so when I started six or so years ago the number that was thrown around was like six to nine months. That was your average length of stay for a, for a tenant. And now I think a lot of it has to do with home sizes getting smaller to become more affordable. It's becoming an accessory. And now they're saying like 12 to 15 months is your average length of stay. That's crazy to me. And they're, and, and to give some perspective on occupancy, what, Utah market, what type of occupancy are you typically seeing out there? Yeah, right now we're somewhere around 93%. Um, there'll be some properties that are a lot higher, some that are a lot lower, but during 2021, it was probably 97%. Um, there's been some more deliveries, more new supply coming in the market, and then like everything else just kind of a reversion to the norm, but we're somewhere in the low 90s. How is the current supply horizon? Like, is there a lot of supply coming on that has people worried? I mean, I can only kind of speak to multifamily and industrial. Yeah. You know, we've got a lot of multifamily projects coming down the pipeline downtown. Is it similar for self-storage? So self-storage, I feel like we already went through our big boom. Um, 2019 was really like 2018, 2019. That's when it seemed like anybody and everybody with land and a shovel was building self-storage. Um, right now it looks pretty good. There's still pockets that you would say are maybe overdeveloped, but for the most part, it seems like in elevated construction costs and debt, um, like everything else is, is curbing a lot of the new development projects. A lot of people that have the ability to, to wait are waiting. And are you seeing a lot of self-storage conversions on the horizon? Um, there's a lot more interest for better, or for worse cities. Don't love self-storage. 
Um, and most of your conversion product is going to be in a, a retail corridor and cities oppose it quite a bit. So as far as converting a big box as a developer or as an owner, it's great because your infrastructure is basically already there and built. You just go in and put up the dividing walls and you're ready to go. Uh, the biggest hurdle there is getting the cities on board and getting it through zoning. So there's definitely demand, um, but cities have been the big headwind. And then also your price per square foot for storage is going to be less than a big box. So if a retail owner is in a position to backfill a dark big box with another retailer, they'll make more money than selling it to a self-storage developer. Anytime I see like a, big box strip mall with a, like extra space as a tenant. I just think of like the nightmare of getting that approved. So it's always <laughs> impressive to me. Yeah. Um, how is Utah? Can, I mean, you do a lot of stuff in Utah, obviously, yeah. but you also do stuff all over the country. Mm-hmm. What are kind of some of the differences between the Utah market and the national market when it comes to self-storage? Yeah. So Utah is as much as we're probably biased towards Utah and think it's the place to be. Um, we're still a pretty young market. We're still growing and and maturing as far as self-storage goes. And a lot of our operators here in Utah Wasatch Front in particular are what we would consider mom and pop. Um, So less sophisticated owners that maybe own one or two properties. Uh, So our rate growth in Salt Lake City has really been kind of held back by the number of unsophisticated operators. Um, There are a lot of larger operators that are trying to break into the space and break into the state. Um, And as they do, we're seeing rates grow, um, which is a good thing for everybody. Um, But historically, with how divided the ownership is in Utah, or I guess fragmented the ownership is from big guys to little guys, um, we're still probably a few years behind where we should be as far as rate growth goes. There's been a lot of institutionalization of self-storage over the recent years. How big, how much of a factor has that played like since you've gotten the business since 2018? Um, it's big. And there's a, there are a lot of operators that that's, that's the end goal. Yeah. Um, they're aggregating properties. They're trying to create scale and they're trying to create a, a center of mass that would be appealing for one of these big guys to come in and, and pick up a portfolio. Um, a lot of the larger operators, strategically, they'll pick up one or two properties if they have an existing presence, but it would be really hard for an extra space public storage to go buy one property in Twin Falls, Idaho, or something like that, right? But if there's a portfolio of 500,000 square feet and they can get multiple flags, that's definitely an opportunity. And I think a lot of real estate is consolidating and a lot of capital is coming into the space because they've looked at the headwinds in hospitality. They've looked at the headwinds in office or some of these other product types. And self-storage isn't immune to those, but it weathers the storm pretty well. So those guys have found a safe haven in self-storage on the roll up strategy. I think there's, I think everybody, every real estate guy that I know is like, I want to just roll up a bunch of whatever class B industrial apartments, whatever it is. And, you know, flip it to Blackstone for a (laughs) three cap. Yeah. 
what at what type of scale do you think it's uh, it makes sense for you know public storage extra space to pay a premium for that? Yeah, I mean it's going to vary a lot based on the market and the rates and and where they're where they're already located. Um, if it's a market where they're they have an existing footprint and presence, if you can get five properties, maybe five hundred thousand square feet, something around there, it would make a lot of sense. If it's a new market and a new entrance, you're just going to have to be a larger scale to get that premium. And speaking of, you know, extra space, live storage, public, simply storage, how does someone like me, like my size and scale, ever even think about competing with them? Like we have a couple notes that we went through before the show, like uh, extra space issued $600 million of you know, senior unsecured bonds at 2.35%. Public storage issued 500 million at 0.875%. How does someone compete with that? Uh, you probably don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but but that's that's the truth if you're going head to head with those guys. Um, but the other side of that coin is there there's a, a narrow box that they can buy in. They have to have certain demographics. They have to have certain rents. They have to have certain size of facilities um, to meet their buying criteria. Um, so we've seen more and more guys like you going into what today would be too small of a market for them. But then in three or four years, it's prime opportunity for them to enter the market. One that comes to mind a lot is Boise, where now there's there's plenty of public storage properties in Boise. There's plenty of extra space in Boise. But when I started, there was one portfolio up for sale that a developer out of Phoenix scooped up and then three years later sold it to public storage. Um, so if you're going head-to-head with, public storage at a main and main property in Salt Lake, probably not going to win. You're probably not going to win. Um, but if you're willing to maybe look at a deal that is 30,000 square feet with some expansion, that it's too small today for public, but you can buy it and in three years or any of the REITs and, and sell it to them in three to four years, that's where you can create some opportunity and going into those secondary tertiary, mar- tertiary markets that aren't there for them today. And with those guys, I guess all self-storage in general, it kind of feels like a race to the bottom on pricing. Yeah. You, know, you see these uh, those big guys, they have their websites, and it's like 25 bucks or 45 bucks a month. How how do you, you know, how do you charge more than those guys or yeah. anybody in general? How do you increase the value? So it probably helps to go back a little bit and understand how the pricing models have changed in self-storage. So a number of years ago when I started, we would tell people, hey, if you're 100% full, uh, your your rates are too low, right? You're leaving money on the table if you can't create some type of, of vacancy. Um, so all the big guys were targeting that 90 92%. It shifted almost to like a, a premium model where they're just trying to get people in the door and then 60, 90 days in, they're pushing rates. And so the big guys, they might have a really low introductory rate to get somebody into the unit. But once that person's in, 
give them six months, they're going to be paying more than they are at your facility down the road. Um, an interesting thing that came from their earnings calls uh, just a few weeks ago, overall street rates, so advertised rates, are down about 15%, but public life, which is now merged with extra space, all of their same store revenue has grown. So their revenue is up 4%, but their advertised rates are down. And how does that happen? Well, it happens because of the existing customers getting those 90-day rent bumps. So my advice, if you're competing with one of those guys, is try and match rates, do whatever you can to drive rentals and get people in the door, understanding that that's a that's a person that needs self-storage. It's a person that doesn't want to spend a Saturday emptying out a storage unit. And you have this ability that you can push rates 60 to 90 days in the future and get them up on par with a market rate that you're, you're targeting. I think the most compelling thing about self-storage is, you know, just how big of a pain in the ass it is to actually move <laughs> stuff. So yeah. you just continue to pay a couple hundred bucks a month to, yeah. to not do it. Um, you mentioned earnings calls. How correlated have self-storage stats been with the housing market? I mean, obviously, there's a lot less movement there with the rise in rates. Yeah. Has it made its way into self-storage at a dramatic pace? Oh, I think that that's a big driver of why occupancy has dropped and why we're not seeing portfolios at 97% occupancy. I don't know what the stat is today, but in 2019 our research showed that one in three users of self-storage were using self-storage because they were moving homes. And so that's a huge... That is way bigger than I anticipated. Yeah, that's huge. And I think that that number has gone down, um, but there is definitely a strong correlation between home sales, population growth, and movement um, to users of self-storage. So it, yeah, it's, it's going to hurt a little bit, um, but I do think that... I mean, you've talked about this on other podcasts with other people that affordability is a huge missing piece in the housing market. And how do we solve affordability, smaller units, more density, all of those things, um, which means if I'm living in a 1,200 square foot townhouse, maybe I don't have room for my snow gear at the house. So maybe I rent a 5 by 10 self-storage unit and it becomes more of a extension of your house. So we definitely need more movement in the housing industry to maintain occupancy and growth. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's definitely trickled in. Thanks for listening to the show, by the way. Oh yeah. Um, one thing that I respect about you is you are the self-storage expert. Uh, like, you know, every time I talk to you about something, you're like, Oh, I know that seller. I talked to him two years ago and we had him under contract at X and something <laughs> happened. Were you just Maybe uh, take a step back and like, how did you get into the self-storage brokerage business? And was it always self-storage? Like what, how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, like every, you know, little kid growing up in Southern Utah, it was like NBA or self-storage broker were mm -hmm. the two goals, right? I chose NBA and missed. So. <laughs> um, no, um, so I, I've got a background in sales and have always been fascinated with real estate and when I was looking for, you know, what the next step was, brokerage seemed like the right crossroads for my background and interest in real estate, like degree in finance. I did door-to-door -door sales for five, six years. 
and real estate seemed to fit all of those or brokerage fit those needs or those wants that I wanted to do. And I teamed up with Marcus and Millichap um, just by introduction, uh, wanted to be on the investment sell side and they have a great program for training investment brokers. And nobody at the time was doing self-storage in Utah. So I really did not have a ton of interest in self-storage to be like completely transparent. Um, I had been working with some multifamily guys doing acquisitions. But when I looked at the brokerage space in Utah specifically, I mean, there are 100 guys doing retail. There are a bunch of guys doing multifamily and industrial. And there was one guy who had focused on self-storage, actually used to be at our company and went off on his own, but he had started focusing on other things. So I just looked at it honestly as low-hanging fruit and was very fortunate to team up with a national team in the Leclerc Schlosser group that, I mean, those guys are some of the first guys to start doing self-storage. Um, our team, I think, has done over $8 billion in transactions. So I thought, if nobody's doing it here in Utah, and I can just hit the phones and talk to these people that nobody's been talking to and put the weight of a, a national team behind me with their track record, it should be a quicker learning curve or quicker entrance to the market, um, which so far has played out pretty well. So if you, let's say I was a, you know, just graduating college or the MRAD or something, and I told you I wanted to be a commercial real estate broker, what advice would you give me on that? Um, find a good mentor. Um, I was fortunate to be in the MRAD and play that, uh, the master's real estate development program at the University of Utah. And I took advantage of that student card and started cold calling brokers in the market. I mean, they probably don't even remember this, but like guys like Brandon Fugel had me in his office because I said, I'm a student and I want to get into <laughs> brokerage. And he took an hour to talk to me, right? That was cool. Other guys at other shops did the same thing. And so I would use your student card. I would use your, I'm trying to get in the space and really find a good mentor and a good team. Um, brokerage is tough. There's a lot of ups and downs and a lot of months you go without a paycheck. Um, Been there? Yeah. Yeah. But I think finding a mentor and somebody who's been through the ups and the downs um, really gives you a little, it gives you some staying power at least. Now, if I said I, you know, want to be a, a self-storage investment manager, like I want to go raise friends and family money, go not compete against extra space and the big boys, mm -hmm. what do you think the good, uh, the good sponsors do that maybe the less sophisticated don't? Mm -hmm. Or what type of advice would you give to that person? So know what you can do. Um, the last thing, especially as a broker um, or any broker in any market wants is a guy coming in with no idea what his investment criteria is, what his investors are going to require for returns. 30% IRR. Yeah, and what, their, and what their debt looks like. And if it is a 30% IRR, like it's going to be tough. Going to be tough. But... You've got to at least know that, right? A lot of guys that call me and say, I would love to buy self-storage. Okay, what are you looking for? Well, self-storage. Yeah, just, just <laughs> self-storage. I, I like the fact that they, you know, you just There's sweep no, it out and they're no ready toilets. to go. Yeah. yeah. And so figure out your investment criteria and then be patient. 
Um, but also when the right dill comes along that fits that box, move as quickly as you can. Um, the easiest way to get brokers, I would say, of any product type to send you their dills and to do more dills is close the first one without a lot of hiccups, right? Once you've performed, you're going to make it onto the, the nice list and, and you're going to be able to go forward. But up front, figure out your investment criteria, know where your money's coming from, already have that kind of pre-flighted with your investors. By the time you're going under contract, you're already buying the deal. You're just using that due diligence period and those contingency periods to remove any like major red flags. Do you recommend SBA money for someone? Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's a great option. Right now it's tough. I mean, in 2020 and 2021, it was like actually pretty cheap debt. It was free money. Yeah. yeah. And getting into the SBA with, I mean, you could get 10%, 15% down. Most of the loans that we've worked with with the SBA are 15% down. Um, that's awesome. Uh, right now, where that SBA piece has been floating and variable on a lot of these loans, uh, that is, that's hurting. And that higher leverage gives you less room for error, right? Like that debt service growing and moving um, in today's interest rate environment is hard. But yeah, if you can get in with an SBA loan and you're comfortable with the personal guarantee and all of that, um, yeah, it's a great way to get in, get a foot in the door with 10 to 15% down instead of our conventional loans right now that are 50%. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Is, is that typically what you're seeing people buy, I guess, maybe take out the last year and a half or so. I guess it really hasn't been that normal of a market for a long time, but yeah. what would you say is the most conventional form of financing? Is it bank debt for yeah. self-storage? Yeah. Um, once you get into the institutional space, you're going to see a lot more of the LifeCo CMBS money um, in the space. But right now, specifically, like regional banks, local banks, your relationship lenders, they're the most active and have the most flexibility. But I would say bank debt has been probably the most normal course that people go. And uh, <clears throat> I don't want to just exclusively talk about extra space and those <laughs> guys, but are they, what are they thinking about the market when you talk to them? Are they saying we're looking to buy stuff or are they looking for distress or what yeah. are their, uh, and this probably goes beyond just extra space in public, maybe institutional, institutional level buyers. Um, it does seem like everybody's waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, everybody feels like with the amount of loans that are coming due in the next 18 months with the state of the economy, everybody's kind of waiting for blood in the water. Um, who knows if it actually comes. And so it does seem like there's been a pullback from the institutional buyers to buying core assets and markets that they're already familiar with. Um, we just closed a deal in Riverton and the buyer on that deal, in my opinion, bought it because it created some strategic opportunities for them with their other stores in the market. Um, I don't see the big guys entering new markets right now. I don't see them stretching on pro forma projections. Um, we're going back to a, a time of what's the in-place cap rate, what's the in-place cash flow, and giving less value to those year one, year two projections where 
I mean, the last two and a half years or before this year, it was like, uh, who cares about the in-place cap rate? Yeah. Because year one, it's a five. It's bittersweet, honestly. Yeah. Um, one question I've had is, uh, what are, in terms of management, I've never really understood the need for like an on-site manager. Yeah. You know, you kind of can do everything with your phone now. Is that, are you seeing that everywhere or is yeah. that just, uh, you know, some of the maybe more sophisticated operators? Um, so I, I actually think the opposite. I feel like the, really the, the low tech, less sophisticated operators were the first ones to adopt the remote option. And that might just have been necessity. Just like, a phone call. Yeah. yeah. Um, but historically the big guys have been, we've got somebody on site and I, I want to say it might've been two years now, time runs together, but extra space acquired storage express um, and storage storage express was a fully remote operation. Um, it was a very large portfolio in the Midwest. And with that ex- acquisition, it kind of signaled to the market, in my opinion, that the big guys are now looking at virtual management and, remote management. And there's been a lot of talk in the industry now of how do you create economies of scale in a market? And instead of having one manager at every single property, maybe you have a centralized location, like a hub and spokes model where you've got one rockstar employee that you probably pay more than you would a normal manager, but they're handling the calls for three or four properties. And then you've got a handyman that's a, a rover. And so we're seeing that shift. And I think that leads a lot of that has been the result of staffing issues, finding good employees at a property. And then also just the fact that if you're a stabilized self storage property, that's 90% full and you got 400 units, like, how often is somebody actually walking in the door yeah. to talk to a manager? They might talk to three or four people a day on property. The rest of it's going to a call center or it's done on on your phone. Um, so that's I think that's the future of self-storage is you've got a kiosk or a QR code or something on site and you've got one or two people in the region that are floating stores. And are there any other trends that you think are headed this way? Um, I think that the we we kind of touched on it with the rental increases, um, like the the industry term for it is ECRIs, so existing customer revenue increases. <laughs> it's kind of a mouthful. Um, and I was just at the Utah Self Storage Show and the Idaho Self Storage Show, and there's going to be a breaking point at some point because the smaller operators think that the bigger operators are price gouging customers. And I don't really have a dog in the fight to say what's right or what's wrong. Um, but there is a very big shift towards more frequent and more aggressive revenue increases. And then another big shift I would just say is the importance of online advertising. Um, why it is so hard to compete with those big guys is because when you type in Self-storage near me. Yeah, they're going to be at the top of every page, even if they're not near you. I mean, I I did an experiment the other day and picked a random town in Idaho 
hundreds of miles away from any big store. And when I typed in self-storage in this town, Idaho, Extra Space and Public were at the top of the <laughs> list. And their closest store was three hours away. So that's a big shift as well as the importance of creating that digital footprint and leasing to, I mean, essentially our demographic. Our demographic, you know, the 28 to 40-year-old guys, they, they don't want to go in and talk to a manager. Yeah, I can just text someone. Or yeah, just or like just go online and yeah. sign the lease and get my code and show up. Like I don't need somebody to do that. So getting those systems automated and being online, uh, that's that's huge. You mentioned earlier that I think it was 66% of self-storage users or 33% of self-storage users are from moving. moving. What are what are the other people um, using self-storage for? Because from my perspective, it's like if you're storing 1200 bucks worth of stuff, but you're paying, you know, a hundred bucks a month, a month for it. It's yeah. like, um, that's a great question that I wish I knew the answer to. Uh, one of my first self storage conferences, the founder of extra space showed a slide that said, uh, the biggest competitor to the self storage industry is the dumpster. <laughs> um, and it's the truth, right? A lot of the stuff that people store, it's not worth what they're paying to store it. So it's sentimental value. It's things like that. But I really do believe that as home sizes have become smaller, it's become more of an extension of your garage or your spare bedroom. And so I think that you're seeing more and more users in that space. Um, but you also have a lot of commercial users. So your your plumbers, your electricians that probably don't need a small bay industrial building they just need a place to store their tools at night or they just need a place to store their supplies. And those commercial users are becoming more and more important because they're less price sensitive, but they do need more access and more, more availability. I would love to just have a big portfolio of like contractor garage, class B industrial, <laughs> yeah. just paired with like adjacent self-storage. I think yeah. that's, that's the move right there. All right. Well, this has been fun. I've learned yeah. a lot today. So we'll, uh, we'll have you back on shortly. Yeah, no, I, this is great. I think it's awesome that you're doing this and hopefully uh, get more people on here and keep growing your platform. Let's it's get awesome. the extra space CEO on. Let's yeah, do it. let's so, get them. Let's do it. Cool. Thanks, man. Yeah, no problem. That was great.